This is Mark chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. The Hebrew prophets in the First Testament struggled with a reality. The reality of the presence and the absence of God. Now the First Testament is loaded with experiences in which the Israelites were encountered by God in real space and time in the midst of their lives. And they testified to those experiences. But even in the First Testament, that was a rare occurrence. It didn't happen all the time. There are enormous gaps in the First Testament, sometimes gaps of hundreds of years, sometimes a thousand, in which God is silent, and nobody has any immediate experience of Him. And so the Israelite people are a people forged by those unique experiences with God, when God spoke with Abraham, when God met with Jacob, and Jacob saw the, the stairway going between heaven and earth, and he saw the angels, those experiences. When God reached down into human history and delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, Israel was forged by those experiences. But they were experiences, if you looked at the massive amount of Israelite people who have lived from the beginning till now, most of them experienced none of that. A very small percentage. And so Israel believed that God was imminently involved in their lives, that they had been a chosen people selected by God, and they had the stories to prove it. But most Israelites did not have the experience to prove it. And so they wrestled. A people who believed in the real and activity of God in the world, and yet experienced the absence of God in their daily lives. In the Psalms, they struggle with how God can be real if He hasn't made Himself manifest in my experience, the way that He made Himself manifest in the experience of Moses or of Abraham. That's a wrestling match for the Israelite people. It runs all through the First Testament. And it runs through the New Testament. Matter of fact, Israel had gotten so used to living without reference to the active involvement of God in their lives. It had been, by the time Jesus was born, it had been 500 years since a prophet had been sent to Israel. 500 years of silence. 500 years in which they received no direct word from God. 
And they had gotten in those 500 years so proficient at doing religion without God that when God Himself came in the flesh, they couldn't believe it. They didn't recognize Him. How could they? They're, they were living almost as atheists. They believed in God, but they didn't believe He would ever show up. They knew that He had done some things in the past, at least they confessed that much, but they didn't expect Him to do anything in the here and now. And Jesus is a surprise. Now, once the Israelites start to get a sense that a new day has dawned, that 500 years of silence had been broken, and that John the Baptist was really a prophet from God, can you believe it? 500 years. My, my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents had never seen a prophet. But here he is in my life, John the Baptist. And then the disciples chosen by Jesus, and Jesus seems to be one of those prophets. And they realize they're living in a rare moment in human history, one that they had heard about, told stories about from the time that they were children, but never thought that they would ever see. And here he is. And then he begins to tell them in this section of Mark that it is short-lived, soon he's going to die, and soon he's going to leave. They can't get it. Well, the nine disciples at the bottom of that mountain, left alone to deal with the problems of life by themselves, they got it. Because for them, Jesus was gone. And they did not handle it very well. And what I want you to begin to see in this passage, because I think this is Mark's point, is to begin to understand two things. How do we remain connected with God when He's absent? And how do we follow Jesus when Jesus is not here? There are three overlapping consequences of living in that space. And the disciples make their decision disconnected from God. They believe in Jesus. They're following Him. But they decide to take it on themselves, to do the religious thing on their own, without reference to Him. And that's what this story, I think, is about. There are three overlapping consequences to making that decision. And the first is this. If we see God as the sap, as the source of the life of the universe, then we recognize that technically we're never apart from God because we couldn't live without Him. But there are ways of strangulating the source of the sap in our lives, of cutting ourselves off from that nourishing sap. Jesus says things like, I am the vine, you are the branches. Anyone who remains in me will have life, but anyone who is cut off will be burned up in fire. You've, you've read those passages. Without the sap, without that connection with God, first thing that begins to happen, and it happens most poignantly in organized religion, is that the branches compete for the few resources that are left. Without the sap, the branches begin to compete with one another. And that's what happens here at the foot of the mountain. The Pharisees never really liked Jesus, so Jesus is not a popular guy with them. But he is powerful, and every time they disagree with him, he does a miracle, and it infuriates them. But you see, here they had an opportunity where Jesus wasn't there. And the followers of Jesus are given the opportunity to do a miracle. And they fail to do it. And this is the perfect opportunity for the teachers of the law to step in and begin to question the truthfulness of Jesus and the authority of the apostles. And so they begin to bicker. And the disciples don't even know what to say because they did fail to cast out the demon. 
And the man who came in faith to have a healing from Jesus is now doubting whether or not Jesus is the truth because his people failed to heal his son. When the prophet is absent, when the one who can do the miracles is not present, people often retreat, religious people, into deism. Deism is practical atheism. Deism is the belief that we are on our own and it's now up to us to make our way in the world with the little tools God gave us. When the prophet distances himself, the next generation or even the people immediately there at the mountain, that's how they live. They live as though God exists somewhere but has no practical bearing on their lives. There's a sign when that's happening in a faith community. The people start to eat each other. When competition begins, the sap is running dry. When the people compete, the sap is running dry. That's the first reality. Secondly, without the sap, the branches begin to corrupt. They begin to decay. They begin to fall to pieces. You see this story in verses 20 to 27 of this young boy. And it's a fascinating way in which Mark tells this story. So long as this story is in the other Gospels. But this is the longest one. And do you notice the interrogation of Jesus with this father? Father says, I brought my son to your disciples to cast out this demon, but they couldn't do it. Can you help me if you can? And Jesus, of course, indignant, if I can. And then Jesus asks him, how long has this been? The father says to him, it's since childhood. Matter of fact, this demon often tries to throw him into the fire and into the water to kill him. Now some, because of the description, you read the description, the boy becomes stiff, he foams at the mouth, he falls down. There are modern readers of the Gospel of Mark who think, well, this boy had epilepsy. But there are some evidences that Jesus was able to distinguish between ailments. And Jesus doesn't treat all ailments in the Gospels as though they're all demons. Matter of fact, Mark is very careful to say Jesus heals both illnesses and demon possession as different things. And some of the details this father gives indicates that this really is a sign of demon possession, that it's not just your run-of-the-mill epilepsy. And the detail there that reveals that is that this demon tried to kill him. It threw him into the fire, and it threw him into the water. For the Hebrew people... When, and this comes right from Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The original creation is a chaotic mess that is not sustainable for life. And that's the first force. It's the most original force. And then God speaks into that chaos, and He begins to order the chaos in Genesis, right? He separates light from darkness. He separates water from water. He separates land from water. And then He fills these spaces that He's created. The sun, moon, and stars. He fills the water with fish and, and, and sea creatures, the air with birds. And then He begins to work on the earth and finally creates humanity. So God takes that original chaos of creation, and He speaks order into it. So the demonic are those forces for the Hebrew people that war against the orderliness that is necessary for life. Whether we're talking about mental orderliness, whether we're talking about social orderliness, whether we're talking about a moral orderliness, orderliness is necessary. And the demonic are those things that try to ruin, try to destroy life, try to bring disorder, disharmony, ruin life and thriving. 
And when they saw someone, not just who was sick, but who was being morally or physically destroyed, they always recognized the demonic. It's the intentionality of the personal harm that reveals the demonic for Mark. And this, whatever it was, was trying to kill the boy. What Mark begins to reveal, and this is a very difficult word for any of us to hear, hear, but in that garden all those years ago, when God offered humanity the opportunity to trust and follow Him, or to be autonomous and go their own way, humanity chose to go their own way, to live without reference to God. And that decision was a decision to begin to strangle the sap that gave us life. It was a decision to return to the chaos of our original creation, to the lifelessness from which God took us. And so, what has happened to the human race, and Mark begins to reveal this, and it will become most poignantly revealed after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, is that humanity in general, in our decision to be autonomous, to make our own decisions, to live our own lives, our belief that the most important thing in the universe is an individual human through their own eyes, that belief has created an ensanguination of the source of our life. And it has resulted in physical, moral, social decay in the human world. And this boy is a consequence. Now notice what Mark is very, very clear about. This boy didn't dabble in the occult or the dark arts. He didn't do something to open himself up to demon possession. Remember Jesus asked, how long has he been like this since he was a kid? He was just an innocent child. This thing grabbed hold of him. And his father's clearly a faithful Israelite. But this child is a, a consequence of humanity's decision to live without reference to God. Every one of us, at this time and ever since, who've made our decisions without reference to God, have contributed to the moral and physical decay of this world that results in things like this for this child. It's insidious. This is systemic. Some of the other people that Jesus healed, maybe it was their fault. Maybe they made decisions. There's some evidence that that's the case. But not this one. He was born into a world that did this to him. Why? Because the sap is being cut off. And the disciples, of course, they could heal the other demon possession. They could heal the other kinds of affliction, but they could not touch this one. When the source of life is squeezed off, the branches begin to corrupt and decay. And the scriptures predict that the longer we walk down that road, the more corruption will creep in. Physically, morally, socially, it seems to me we're living in the fallout of that truth. Without the sap, the branches compete. And without the sap, the branches begin to corrupt. Now the question of this entire story is why could the disciples not deal with this? Is God trying to tell us that the church will have no power over this kind of corruption? Or is there something else at stake? Well, Jesus reveals the answer to that. His disciples are terribly distraught. I mean, Jesus handles this demon no problem, just like he did every other one. So Jesus is not hampered by this reality at all. But his disciples were terribly hampered by it. And Jesus says to them, this kind can only come out by prayer. The disciples have misunderstood something that we in the church must always remember. You see, in Mark chapter 6, you can turn back there if you have your Bibles open, Mark chapter 6, verse 7. 
we find the following words. Jesus is selecting out these 12, specially out of all the disciples who are following him. He sets out 12, and he gives them a special power. In chapter 6, verse 7, we have these words. Calling the 12 to him, to Jesus, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And they go out on that mission that God gives them, and they cast out evil spirits. So they are perplexed that they couldn't cast out this one. Why couldn't they? There's a misapprehension of the disciples. They seem to think that God's gifting of them, that His power to them, is a, a, some sort of a trust, like giving them a tool, and they could use it any way they wanted. And then when they tried to use it, it didn't work. And Jesus says something, and they thought it was battery-powered. <laughs> and Jesus said, you've got to plug it in. God does not give humans gifts to use however we wish to use them. God's gifts are dependent on our connection with Him. He is the source of our life. We can't live without Him. We cannot use the gifts He gives without remaining connected to Him. And so here we have this, this statement of Jesus. This kind only comes out by prayer. Prayer. Prayer is not magic. Prayer is not control. Prayer is not a way to get God to put you on the throne momentarily so that you can direct the, the course of the universe because you prayed hard enough. God does not stop being God when we pray. Prayer is relationship. Sharon Dowd, one of the commentators on the Gospel according to Mark, she said it this way, Jesus' answer is that this kind of demon comes out only for those who are persons of prayer, like Jesus himself. We've already seen in Mark that Jesus consistently made it part of his routine to go away to a quiet place and to pray. We've seen that twice already in a very short Gospel, and the implication is he did it all the time. This kind of demon only comes out for those who are persons of prayer like Jesus himself. The disciples' power for ministry depends upon the quality of their time spent in the presence of God. James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James later in the New Testament, would say it this way, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Prayer is relationship. Prayer is God's promise to hear us to sit with us, to communicate with us, to receive what we would like, to receive our praise, and then to consider it when He decides what to do. This is prayer. And God sometimes says no. See, prayer is not a magical way to force God's hand. It is a relationship with God nurtured by constant communication, oftentimes feeling only one way. But the belief is that Jesus has promised us that whatever power we're going to have in this world, whatever ability to influence the outcome, is going to be connected to the quality of our relationship with the God we claim to serve. Our relationship with God is an ongoing, continual act of communication. Prayer. And it's the prayers of those folks who are in relationship with God that are powerful and effective.
we need him. We need him. Prayer is the call of a human heart into the darkness, asking him to return. It's our tiny, whimpering voice saying we were wrong. We were wrong. Could you come back? And prayer becomes that connection, that communication. It is the only thing God has given us in this world that can get from this reality to wherever He is. There's nothing else. We can't build a spaceship to get there. We're not going to be able to tear the fabric of space and time and slip through into His reality somehow if we get advanced enough. There's only one way for communication from where God exists to where we exist to happen. And it's prayer. This is a hard saying for the disciples because they are realizing two things. First, Jesus is not going to be with us forever. Right? That's becoming clear. Secondly, when He's not with us, things are going to be a lot harder than they are when He is. And third, apparently prayer is the only lifeline He's going to give us. This is the challenge, I think, that's given to us by God's Word. And the disciples have to learn this. And they're going to learn it the hard way. But they learn it well. In the book of Acts, after Jesus is ascended into heaven, He's no longer with them. That mountaintop experience now becomes their permanent experience for the rest of their earthly lives. And Jesus is gone. And He sends the Holy Spirit to them. When all that happens, what do they do in Acts? Over and over again. Every time they run into trouble. Every time they don't know what to do. Every time they hit a pickle. They pray. Prayer is relationship. So try this. If you're not a person of prayer, try this. In the morning when you wake up, try doing something like this. Do it in your own words, obviously. I can't tell you what to do. It's, I'm not writing an owner's manual. That's over here. You say, good morning, God. Good morning. Would you walk with me today? And every time you have something to say, just say it to Him because you're still praying. Because he's walking with you. You've asked him to. Just keep the conversation going. And do not say amen until just before you close your eyes and you go to bed. Say good night, God. Amen. Try that. If you're not a person of prayer, try that. We have to reconnect with him.